about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good morning. Great to be with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are kind, gracious, lavish toward us. And we're thankful for your word and thankful for the hope that it gives us in the world to come and the energy it gives us to live in the world that you've given us. Father, refocus ourselves uh, upon your power this morning, your ability to raise the dead. And Father, energize us through that faith to live a life to your glory. Amen. Uh, well, one thing I miss about living in this part of the world uh, is the beaches of the northern suburbs. I'm from that kind of area, uh, and I don't like any of the beaches in the east. Uh, the beaches a bit further north are just a little bit more wild, a little bit more lonely, and a little bit more fun. And maybe the reason I really miss them is simply nostalgia, because that's on those wild, woolly beaches where I actually learned how to surf. And so I miss them. I miss that place. I don't know if you've ever learned how to surf, but it's something that makes a lot of sense on the beach. But when you get into the waves, it's a whole other thing, if you know what I'm talking about. You see, when you're learning how to surf, you start on the beach and you kind of lay out your board and you lie on it and you paddle into the sand a bit and you learn how to jump up and you're thinking, yeah, this could work. This is going to go well. I remember the first day I learned how to surf, and I learned on a surf called Warrywood, right up north near Monavale. If you know anything about Warrywood, it's a fairly chaotic beach. And so I'm standing on the sand learning, and then the time comes to get in the waves. And I hop up and I start to paddle, and I get knocked off straight away. <laughs> I get back on, I get knocked off again, and again, and again. Uh, I'm out the back for the first time in my life and my, my arms are screaming with pain <laughs> from the paddling and my eyes are red and I'm wondering all of a sudden whether actually the stuff I did on the sand is going to be worth doing in the beach at all. I'm not sure whether I really want to do this anymore. This made a lot more sense on the beach and it doesn't make so much sense out here in the waves. Coming to the end of Corinthians, a book that calls for an entire revolution of our way of life in light of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, we've been practicing on the sand, so to speak. And it makes a lot of sense on the sand as you hear Corinthians open, but the reality is when you head out into the waves, when you head out into the world and you start to live a life that's content in whatever circumstances, when you start to live with a different sexual ethic, when you start to live out of love for others, when you start to consider not your good but the good of others, things aren't that easy and you find yourself with your biceps burning wondering whether you really want to do this. It made so much more sense on the sand. But when you're out in the waves, you need a reason to keep going. You need a reason for why to do the rest of Corinthians at all. 
And friends, I think that is why 1 Corinthians 15 is at the end. Because the thing that gives you the energy, the endurance, the perspective, the power to live the Christian life in the waves is the resurrection. Is your coming resurrection. Because let's be honest, if this life is all that there is, then there is no point in living out the faith that is in Corinthians. Only the resurrection of the dead gives us the imagination to live and endure living out our faith. So let's have a look at this together. Uh, This second half of 1 Corinthians 15, the first half is kind of all logic and then and ifs and thens and kind of thing. The last half is just beautiful metaphor. And it's like Paul gets out his paintbrush and starts painting the, the reality and invites you into the resurrection. So three things I want to look at from the resurrection, from these images that Paul gives us, that give us endurance in life, in the waves. Three things. The first is that we'll be kept by God's power. The second is that we'll be wholly transformed. And the third is that we are God's victory. First one, we'll be kept by God's power. Have a look at verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, We've been looking at Corinthians, and we, we know that the Corinthians don't think there's a resurrection of the dead. They don't actually think that's a thing at all. They're just part of Greek culture. Um, and so they don't think anything about us is going to be kept in the end. That like our culture, we're annihilated, and our essence and our being has no future. And if you live in that view of the world, of course it doesn't matter what you do with your life, your morality. You might as well make it up. Because no one's waiting for you at the end and there is no future. But what Paul says is that we are kept by God's power in the resurrection. Now, the question that Paul opens with is kind of uh, interesting. It's a question of logistics, really. A question of how could the resurrection actually happen? Uh, He quite uh, sarcastically turns to the Corinthians and says, you guys can't think of any way in which the resurrection can happen. There's no thought in your head about anything in reality that helps you think that the resurrection could happen. Haven't you guys ever thought about seeds? Don't you know about seeds? Verse 36. How foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He says, you know, the resurrection is written into creation. Don't you know what a seed does? It goes into the ground and it dies and it comes up as something else. It's the same substance, the same essence, but when it dies and it has to die to become something even better. I'm just going to grab that because uh, you know the reality of an avocado is that the seed is not so great on your toast, but when you let it die, then things start to happen, right? You know, the, the seed, it's the same substance, but when it dies, it comes back as something else. And he says, haven't you guys thought about this? Like, the world is dripping with resurrection, <laughs> with a God who makes seeds come back as something else. He says in verse 38, God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own 
body. He says we are kept in resurrection by the power of the creator God. And then what he does is he kind of goes on a tour of creation and and takes you through all the aspects of this creator God and his immense power to create different types of bodies. He's like, you know, there are men, they have flesh and bones and hair and and women, and, and there are animals with scales and ones with feathers. And then if you look into the sky, you see the moon and the stars and the sun, and all of them have different bodies and shapes and different glory and different splendor. This God you know and love, he created all things. Don't you think he can give you a new body? Like he gives life to a seed that dies? Your God can raise the dead. You can be kept by God's power through the resurrection. But it's worth maybe pausing at this moment because actually this view of who God is that Paul has isn't actually the view our culture has about God in its discussion about God anymore. Our culture has kind of narrowed and made smaller its view of God to the point where evolution puts God at risk. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Here's a guy, uh, David Bentley Hart, and the way he describes it. The most pervasive error one encounters in contemporary arguments about belief in God is the habit of conceiving of God simply as some very large object or agency within the universe, or perhaps alongside the universe, who's related to the world more or less as a craftsman, is related to an artifact. Our view, uh, our culture's view of God is kind of like the big bully in the physical neighborhood who can kind of push you around and make, maybe do some landscaping along the way. That God is that threat by evolution, right? Because when you look at evolution and you, and you see some other big bully, it's this unnamed force that moves things forward through the world. All of a sudden you think, well, there is no God, it's just evolution. This God is that threat. Luckily enough, that's not the definition of God any religion has ever used. To speak of God properly is to use the word in a sense consonant with the teachings of Orthodox Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, Baha'i, and a great deal of antique paganism and so forth, is to speak of the one infinite source of all that is eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, uncreated, uncaused, perfectly transcendent of all things, and for that very reason, absolutely imminent to all things. Friends, that God is not at risk with evolution. Because all cultures have looked at the world, they're not wrestled with the mechanism within reality, but the the naked primordial fact of reality at all. And look behind it at the infinite source that causes all things. And that is the God that Paul has in mind. That is the God who can bring stars into being out of nothing. That is the God who can remember you in all your personality, in all your life, in all your traits. And when you die like a seed in the ground, can raise you up again with a new body. You see, the resurrection is the reality of the creator God keeping you And that gives infinite meaning to the life that you have now. 
your body will continue. And so what you do with it matters. The life you live matters. You're not just headed to the grave. You are headed for life eternal. And that means in the waves, when culture questions your faith, when you're wondering whether to continue, you have the reality before you that there is only one God and therefore only one place that you can stand and one power in the universe that can save you from death. And in the midst of the waves, you can entrust yourself to his power. That's the first reason that Paul gives. But the second is essential. The second point he makes is that not only will we be kept by God's power, but we will be wholly transformed. You see, because it might make sense, like in verse 58, to stand firm in light of the resurrection. But the next thing, maybe not, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. I mean, you know that Jesus is coming and you'll be raised from the dead, but is there really any reason to go all in like Corinthians tells you to? To to recolor the whole of your existence by the reality of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what verse 58 calls us to. But the reality of the resurrection is not just that we're kept, but that we are wholly transformed. Have a look at verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, the seed put in the ground, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. The, the resurrection body has a whole different timbre and quality to it. It's imbued with a whole different life. It is a wholly different body, the different, like the different between the moon and the sun. So is the body that is to come. And if you just mill around those words, you get the essence that actually the fragility of our human nature is the thing done away with in the resurrection. Uh, and it's not simply our physical corruptibility, but our moral corruptibility. The body to be raised is wholly impervious to wrong desires, to wrong loves, and to wrong actions. But you might look at this and you might think, well, it, it seems like he's talking about a physical body and then one that's kind of a bit more ethereal. There's a natural body and a spiritual body. But what Paul is talking about here is not uh, one that's physical and one that's above like a spirit, but two physical bodies that have different power sources. In 45 he says, So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Then in 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man from heaven. You remember from Genesis 2 what God does? He gets some clay and he molds a man and he lifts him up and he breathes into him the breath of life and he becomes a man and he walks and there's a woman and then they 
give birth to the human race. From the dust of the earth, this man is raised up. And that is us. We are made from the dust of the earth in our fragility, both morally and physically. But Paul says the second man doesn't just have a breath of life in him. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, who overflowed with the Holy Spirit himself, entirely overtaken by God's power. His body cannot be touched by death. His body cannot be touched by corruptibility. And so it is that our new bodies are taken over by the Holy Spirit, the same as his body is in resurrection. Rather than simply our own desires and our own power, our resurrection body is wholly taken by God. And that means we are incorruptible. We are unable to perish. A new body for a different purpose. You see, and if you know your whole body, your whole essence is about to be remade, recarved, removed of its sin, removed of its wandering. That makes this life now a life to echo the one to come, a life to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let me tell you this story. Uh, I had a f- one of my sister-in-law used to live down at St. Peter's on Lord Street with a friend uh, before she was married. And uh, one night they had someone, they got home late from a party and they had a friend there at 2 a.m. and they said, you should just sleep here. And so he slept there on the couch. I woke up in the morning and they didn't think that anything had changed. But later that day when my sister-in-law came home from work, she looked around and she saw on top of the picture frame something. And she went over and went on, got on a ladder and pulled it down and there was a pencil on the top of the, the frame. She's like, that's really weird. Goes over to get her coffee, gets a spoon out and there are some pencils in the drawer. Goes over to the kettle and there's a pencil in the, in the kettle. And one in the coffee cup and, you know... At, for months, they were finding pencils in laundry, in their clothes, in jacket pockets. Somehow this guy had smuggled into their house hundreds of pencils and put them everywhere. And there wasn't one part of the apartment that wasn't penciled, right? Uh, utterly remarkable prank. Um, but the reality of giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord is the same. It's like walking through every part of your reality and letting uh, that, that little piece of Jesus touch it. And there not being one part of who you are that is not taken over with the reality of his gospel. That's what it looks like to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. That's what it looks like to be an echo in the present of what your body will be one day, wholly transformed. Everything shaped like Jesus. That's what Paul says. Just as we have been born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Your resurrection body is Jesus-shaped. It's you, but transfigured into the key of Jesus. And in light of that whole transformation to come, we are called to give ourselves fully to it now. So we're kept and we're wholly transformed. But the last reality that I think gives us the most energy 
to live Christ's reality in the present is that we and our resurrection is in fact God's victory. You see, if you look at 58, which is kind of the concluding part of this section, he says, stand firm as we said and always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. But then he says, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The stuff you do in your body, the life you live, the sacrifices you make, the inches that you take when you, you start to reflect the person and the reality of Jesus, all of that is not in vain. And you look at that and think, well, why? How, how is that any significant in this life, living out this reality? And that's why we need to lift our eyes to the reality that our resurrection is actually not about us. It's actually about God and his kingdom and his victory over all things. Paul has this beautiful description in the last part of this chapter of that moment when Jesus comes back and we get transformed. And it's just sublime. He says, listen, in verse 51, I tell you a mystery will not all sleep, but will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then in verse 54, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. You see, the world to come, God's world to come, is perfectly reordered. It's free from death and fragility. It's free from corruptibility and sin. And the final victory to put that into place is our resurrection. When our corruptibility is clothed with incorruptibility, when our deathliness is clothed and swallowed with life, God's victory over every power that opposes him is finally complete. It's only at our resurrection has God finally defeated all of his enemies so that death and sin uh, sin can no longer claim victory over any inch of God's world. Your resurrection from the dead is the glorious moment of God's victory. You are God's victory. Your life, transfigured into the key of Jesus, is God's victory. And so when you're in the waves in this world... The thing to keep in your mind is that you live out this reality, not for yourself, but for the sake of the God who is conquering sin and death. Because those two things have a use-by date now. Those two things no longer rule or reign. And so we are called in the present to live out an echo of the victory that is to come. And so when we're raised on that final day and our deathliness and our corruptibility are clothed and we are in God's new world, he will look at every inch that we took, every movement forward, however faultingly, however many stumbles, however many waves hit us down, every little bit of victory in this life that echoed the one to come and say that mattered. That mattered to me. Your echo of my glory in your earthly life was not in vain.
So friends, I don't know what your faith costs you today. In your relationships with others, in your financial life, in your personal life, in your work life, the waves that are hitting you, that make you want to not hold on. Friends, whatever you lose for the sake of becoming more like the Jesus-shaped version of yourself in this world, none of it is in vain. All of it matters in light of what is to come. And all of it matters to your victorious Lord. But as we conclude, it's worth just contemplating for a moment where you get the power to do these things from. Because there is nothing in this chapter about your strength. All of what is to come comes from the power that overflows from the risen Lord Jesus. You see, we all stumble and fall. But when Jesus could have stumbled and fall, he walked to the cross for our misgivings. So that when we fall in this world, rather than getting the judgment we deserve, we can have the heavenly victory that Christ won. And if all that is to come comes from his victory and his power, then anything to be lived in this life can come from nothing but his power alone. So when you are in the waves and not sure whether to keep going, stop resting on your power. And like Paul, look to the victory that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ in faltering ways in this world and ultimately in the one to come. Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.